Amen. I'm going to dismiss the kids uh, for Children's Church. Ian, I think Gary is taking the teenagers too for, uh, right? Yes, okay. I just want to point out during the prayer time how much more efficient the men were by having both pray at the same time. I mean, and I know that's kind of a stereotype, but, you know, we get stuff done. That's all. Ladies first, and then let's just, let's just get it done. All right, I want to try something today that I've watched for years and always been jealous for and never done it. I'm going to preach today with a, with a little sweat towel so I can wipe myself down. I don't really get worked up, but now I feel like I need to. Uh, I want to do it. All right. Um, I think most of you are going to be able to relate to this some way or another. Have you ever taken your anger out on the wrong person or been the object of someone taking their anger out on you that really has nothing to do with you? Have you been on either one of those sides at some point in your life? Okay. Uh, I've been on both sides of it. Uh, as a kid, I often got anger taken out on me that wasn't caused by me. And as a husband, um, it's happened once or twice. I've been married 10 years almost. Uh, early in, early in Kendra and I's marriage, you know, if I was angry about something that happened at work or at church or something or whatever, I would call her while I was driving home and say, just so you know, I'm really angry has nothing to do with you, but get ready. <laughs> and, you know, I would do the best I could to communicate that I am I'm not upset with you. I'm just upset. I'm not going to want to talk. I'm not going to want to spend time together. I, I'm not going to want to ex- just, just let me be because I'm angry and I don't want to take it out on the wrong person. Every now and then my kids get the brunt of it. Uh, although I don't think they get it very often. Emma's too cute to even be angry at. She'll probably never be spanked in her life. Uh, but Aiden's kind of a turd, so he might get it. Uh, <laughs> make sure that's recorded. He'll, uh, we're going to have to take up an offering for his counseling someday. But I have definitely taken out on the wrong person at times, and I've also been the object sometimes where people take stuff out on on me. Uh, and it's really frustrating when that happens because you really are misdirecting your anger and all of, all of your energy towards solving whatever problem you happen to be dealing with at the moment. Now, the reason I bring that up is because uh, as we go through Nehemiah, we're going, to see, we're going to begin this week to see some teaching on spiritual warfare. And when it comes to the area of spiritual warfare, I think often Christians have misdirected anger, misdirected frustration, uh, misdirected discouragement, and we take stuff out on the wrong people when it comes to spiritual warfare. Now, when I'm talking about spiritual warfare, I'm talking about the fact that we were born into a war, that each one of us is in opposition to the, to the enemy of God, Satan or the devil, and that we live in that, and that we are always in the battle at some point. We're not always on the front lines, although I think we should probably be on the front lines more often than we than we are but we often take things out on the wrong people 
For instance, if we're in the midst of a, of a season of spiritual warfare and Satan is attacking us, we will often take that out on our family. Or we'll take it out on our co-workers, we'll take it out on our neighbors, but it often takes many Christians a long time before they realize that they're in the middle of a spiritual battle and that their energy is to be directed at the appropriate source, which is Satan. Do you understand what I'm saying? We, we feel like we're getting beat up on. We don't know where it's coming from, so we kind of lash out at the people around us. I've done it, like I said, once or twice. Uh, before we get into the passage on Nehemiah, I re- we need to understand Ephesians 6, and I'm going to bookend the sermon today with Ephesians 6. There's this just one verse in Ephesians 6, verse 12, that I think helps us understand spiritual warfare throughout the entire Bible. Okay, so I have it up here on the screen. If you'll go to the next slide for me, Nate. Uh, it says in Ephesians 6, and Ephesians 6, about half of it is about spiritual warfare. We'll end up reading more of it later. But if, in Ephesians 6, Paul writes this, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the uh, forces, world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6.12. So Paul is saying here that we are not struggling against flesh and blood. That's not the issue. In fact, you can just memorize this phrase. If it has flesh and blood, it's not your enemy. Okay? Repeat that after me. We'll pretend we're at Wissanomi here. If it has flesh and blood, it's not your enemy. Okay? We don't battle against flesh and blood. Uh, We battle against spiritual powers. Uh, In fact, those words, rulers, powers, forces, uh, are all actually different Greek words that have different meanings, and they refer to different types of demonic beings and different levels of authority in the spiritual realm, and we battle against those. So we are not battling against flesh and blood. Why is that important? Well, it's important, first of all, because... Uh, it prevents us from getting into holy wars against other faiths because we're not battling against people that believe differently than us. We're not battling against them. We're actually battling for them. They're the prize, not the enemy. They're what we're trying to win, not what we're trying to destroy. So this understanding prevents us from uh, holy wars. It prevents us from violence against those who would disagree with us. Um, It helps us understand how we should treat our neighbor. It helps us understand even how we should treat people in our own church that we have disagreements with. Um, It happens far too often that in Christian churches, people begin to identify other people as their enemy, even other people in the church. Oh, I have a disagreement with this person, my enemy. And then then this is what happens. We, We start reading through the Psalms where David is writing about his enemies, and we think that that applies to the person we don't like. And where David says that he wants God to crush the teeth of his enemy. We think, oh, it would be so great if God would just crush the teeth of that person two pews over. Well, that's not a correct understanding of spiritual warfare or even relational conflict in the Bible. And... Your enemy, the one who causes conflict in your life, is Satan or you. 
but it's not someone else. It's either you or Satan. And so you can crush your own teeth, or you can pray against uh, Satan and resist him. I mean, the number one most effective thing that you can do in spiritual warfare is just to resist the devil. You can, you can hoot and holler and scream and yell loud if you want, but if you're not resisting him, none of that will matter. Uh, Jesus overcame Satan in the wilderness by resisting the devil, and James says, resist the devil and he will... F-. Anyone know the rest of that verse? Flee. Resist the devil and he will flee. If you don't resist him, he's going to keep coming back until it stops working. So this helps us. Now, if you've read through the Old Testament, I know many or most of you have, you read through the Old Testament, and it's pretty bloody, right? The Old Testament is pretty bloody. I mean, and it's, it's kind of wild, because at times it's God who is sending Israel into the enemy's camp, and he's saying, kill all the men, kill all the women, kill all the children, right? I mean, that's in there. He's telling them to do that. Kill everybody. Take them all out. And God is commanding that. And Israel had a very bloody history. They were almost always at war with someone. There was, there was only small pockets in their history where they were at total peace. Some of the heroes of the Old Testament, Moses, David, all had blood on their hands. So when I read the Old Testament, and I see how violent it is, and I see how bloody it is, if I don't have Ephesians 6.12 to check me, I think to myself, all right, I can start swinging a sword and taking out and mowing down enemies naturally. But everything in the Old Testament, every war, every battle, every violent invasion of a city that God's people took place in, every one of those literally happened, but it happened to create for us a metaphor of how God wants us to approach spiritual warfare. And that's just like God, isn't it? To use the Old Testament to show us in the natural what he wants us to learn in the spiritual. Okay? Everyone got that? All right. So all the battles in the Old Testament were real. I mean, they were literal. People actually died. But the purpose of those was to teach us about the spiritual battle that we currently uh, live in and are engaged in. So all those passages teach us about spiritual warfare. Okay, so when you read those, please don't come away thinking, well, David could kill people. I guess I can kill people. Okay, that's really wrong. I mean, I think that's pretty obvious uh, that that's wrong. And I think uh, obviously David lived under a different covenant than we do. Um, but David was not allowed to even build the temple. The temple was his dream, and he wasn't allowed to build it because he, of all the bloodshed on his hands. So those are illustrations for us about spiritual warfare. So when you read through those stories, be thinking, okay, who's the enemy? Who's the enemy? The enemy is always Satan. It's not some other person. It's certainly not your Christian brother, and it's also not a lost person. Uh, they're the ones you're fighting either for or alongside, but not against. We good on that. Okay, I just want to test you. Any questions? I, we got to grasp that before we get into Nehemiah 4. Any questions on that? Oh, go ahead, Jessica.
Yeah, that's a great question. I think primarily it was to teach us how seriously this stuff is. So like, for instance, when God sent Israel into a city and he said, kill all the men, kill all the women, kill all the children, I do think that really happened. But I think the message or the lesson for us is don't leave even a little tiny bit of sin left in your life. Like eradicate all of it. Wipe all of it out. You guys are going to have to help me with this, but um, Saul was told to go and kill all of the Amalekites. Did I get that right? Some of you are nodding because you don't know. Dan, do I have that right? Okay. Dan's my, um, my guy in the bag there. Right, right. Right, God told Saul to go in and kill all the Amalekites, all of them, even the children. Don't leave a single one. God, the Amalekites were so wicked that God wanted to eradicate them from the earth. Now, I know that sounds not sympathetic and compassionate, but the Amalekites were killing their own kids. So God is saying, take all those baby killers and kill them so that they stop doing that. All right, so Saul is supposed to kill the Amalekites and their herds, Jason pointed out, like all their, all their animals and everything. And we find out that Saul doesn't do that, and he actually thinks he has a better idea than God had, and he brings some of the herds back for a sacrifice, and he does not kill all of the Amalekites. He kills most of the Amalekites. He figures, well, I did a pretty good job. I was pretty thorough, right? which I think is how we handle sin a lot of times. Do you know what people group the person that killed Saul came from? The person that killed Saul was an Amalekite. He shouldn't even been alive. I mean, so, sometimes the sin you leave, that little teeny sin is the one that kills you. you know, the sin you refuse to kill will come back and kill you. And that's how Saul ended up losing his life. He was killed by a person from a people group that he was supposed to eradicate. So that was a really roundabout way of answering your question, Jessica, which is, I think those stories take place to teach us principles about how we're supposed to deal with sin and spiritual warfare. So take it all out. Be spiritually violent, not physically violent. Uh, be thorough, be aggressive, be on the attack. I think, so I, does that answer your question? Okay. Susan. Right. Well, that, oh, you little trickster trying to catch me. All right. Right. Um, that's a good point. Okay, so maybe I'm using the word enemy a little too freely there because I really, I don't think that, Truly, I would say you're not your own enemy, but you do trip yourself up a lot. I mean, I, I, I screw my own life up more than anyone else screws it up. So maybe I shouldn't use the word enemy there. Uh, but I would say, I guess the point I'm trying to make is take responsibility for your own actions instead of blaming everyone else. Any other questions? I like the Q&A times. All right. If we have an adequate grasp of that, I want to move into Nehemiah 4 quickly. All right, so we've, uh, we've been spending plenty of time in Nehemiah 4, and uh, sorry, in the book of Nehemiah, and really quickly to summarize, Nehemiah is going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. 
Uh, it hit me this week that from Susa, which is where Nehemiah started, to Jerusalem was a two-month journey. So how many days would that be approximately? 60 days. Now, how long did it take them to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? Does anyone know that? 52 days. I find it fascinating that his journey to his assignment took longer than the actual assignment. I think there might be a principle in, in that for us. That it took him longer to get there than to do the job. Um, it makes me feel better about going to college, at least, because that took forever. Now, uh, let me start reading in Nehemiah 4. It's kind of cut off on the screen, so I'm just going to read it from my Bible. But it should match up. Now, it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria, and he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, Even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls was, uh, of Jerusalem went on, and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. So I'm going to stop right there for now. That was verses 1 through 8 of Nehemiah 4. I may go a little further today, but for now, I'm going to stop right there. So Nehemiah is fulfilling his assignment, right? He's rebuilding the wall along with most of Jerusalem, which we, uh, I think it was two weeks ago, and then also last week with Chris and Bridgie Cook, we showed that whole list of all the people, it was about 40 verses of all the people that took part in rebuilding Jerusalem. So this wasn't just Nehemiah by himself laying brick. He, his main job was to go and rally the troops so that they could all work, which is why they were able to rebuild the wall in 52 days, which is quite an accomplishment even today, let alone a couple thousand years ago. So Nehemiah goes in and he's in the midst of fulfilling his assignment when he upsets this other pagan king, uh, pagan ruler, I should say, it wasn't a king, but pagan official named Sanballat. All right, I taught you a neat little trick. If you rearrange the letters in Sanballat, it spells what? Satan ball which means absolutely nothing, but it's a great way to remember that he's a bad guy. Um, all right, so Sanballat is an enemy, and also Tobiah is an enemy, all right, it, to, to Nehemiah. Sanballat never once attempted an attack on Jerusalem when Jerusalem was a pile of rubble. I mean, we don't have any stories where he's attacking them or speaking ill of them. Essentially, when Jerusalem's down in the dumps, no one really cares about them because they're not at all threatening or valuable. It's actually not until 
Nehemiah begins to rebuild the city, that then they begin to face opposition. There's, I, I really hate cliches, but sometimes there's truth in them. And there's kind of this cliche idea that if, if Satan is attacking you, you must be doing something right. It's cliche, but I think there's truth in that. I mean, in the, the, the flip is true. If you're not experiencing any opposition in your life, any spiritual warfare, then I don't know what, what are you accomplishing? I mean, are you, are you pushing forward? I, uh, I one time was coaching a pastor, and he kind of was complaining to me like, all my friends are going through spiritual warfare. I never experienced any spiritual warfare. And I was like, stop complaining, you fool, and do something, I guess. I mean, if you want to, then do something worthwhile. Uh, there is a problem that we can fall into where we play it so safe and accomplish so little for the kingdom because we'd rather not engage in spiritual warfare. There is a reality, though, that if you're going to move forward and you're going to f- fulfill your assignment, that there is going to be opposition. And I kind of talked about that when I preached in chapter 2. I said, when you're fulfilling your assignment, you can expect two things, favor and opposition. So now we're beginning to see the be- the beginning of opposition to Nehemiah fulfilling his assignment. The opposition, didn't, it was not there until Nehemiah began to actually do what God had assigned him to do. In verse 1, Nehemiah provoked this. If you can go back to verse 1 for me, Nate. Uh, so it, it, when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, that's when he gets upset. So sometimes the trouble in your life, the spiritual warfare trouble, you caused it, but not because you're wrong, but because you're making an advance in the kingdom. Because you're, you're actually on the right track. And Satan is a limited being, so he, only, he can only oppose so many people at a time. He sets his sight and his energy on those that are accomplishing the most. So actually, let me break that down a little bit. All right, we have three or four big words that we use to describe God. I'm going to quiz you now, all right? One of those words is omnipotent. What does omnipotent mean? All powerful. Is that you, Diana? All right, good. Diana wins. All right, round one. Uh, Omniscient. What does omniscient mean? All knowing. I heard a couple people say that. You all win. Uh, Omnipresent. He's everywhere. And then there's this other one. Bonus points. Immutable. What does immutable mean? It means he cannot change. Okay, so he's the same. And the reason, you know, we believe God is immutable because when something changes, it's either for the better or for the worse, right? So if God changed for the better, that would mean he wasn't perfect before. And if God changed for the worse, it means he's no longer perfect. So because he's always perfect, he cannot change. Uh, so those four big words, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, and immutable, describe God. They do not describe Satan. We often think Satan is everywhere. He's not. Satan cannot be in two places at the same time. He's a created being. Satan is not omnipresent. In fact, it says in the book of Revelation, I uh, forget, Pergamum, it says to the church in Pergamum, I know where you live where Satan has his throne. So this is a city in the Middle East. Now, I don't know that he's still there. He might have moved his throne. It's been a couple thousand years. But he can only be in one place at one time. All right, so he's limited. He's also not all-knowing. So he does not know everything. He does not know what's going on inside 
of your mind. He's not all-powerful, okay? Uh, and he certainly is not unchanging because he has changed and his nature will change again at some point. So Satan is not equal to God. All right, say that with me. Satan is not equal to God. Um, he's not the yin and yang to God. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb here and stretch some of you. Uh, the actual battle that Satan is engaged in is not against God. It's against us. Satan did not usurp God's authority in the garden. He usurped Adam and Eve's authority, and that's our authority. So Satan's not actually fighting God. He's fighting us. If Satan and God were fighting, we'd be, it would have been like a knockout in round one. But he's fighting us. And our battle is against the enemy. Now, praise God, Jesus actually won that on our behalf. But Jesus won it as a man. That's important. Because Satan usurped authority from a man, so a man had to earn that authority back. You got me so far? Okay. I've wanted to preach on spiritual warfare for months. I haven't been allowed because Luis keeps telling me what to preach on. But finally, it's in the, it's in the Bible here. All right. <laughs> How did I get there? So, Satan is not all-powerful, he's not all-present, and chances are most of you are never, Satan's never going to mess with any of us, because again, he can only mess with so many people at a time. He's probably dealing with the heavy hitters. Now, you will face opposition from demons, which are fallen angels that serve Satan, and Satan is not all-powerful or all-knowing, but he is old, He's wise, and he's well-networked, and that's how his kingdom works, okay? He can't be everywhere, but he's got demons everywhere that communicate to one another. We, we good so far. If it's going to be hot, I might as well preach on some sort of crazy topic, right? So, back to wherever I'm supposed to be in the passage here. Nehemiah provokes this by fulfilling his assignment. He actually starts the spiritual warfare out by obeying God and doing what God told him to do. He then, uh, actually, go to the last slide for me, Nate, because I have all the, the next to last slide. Um, go back one more. Sorry, go forward. Yeah, that's what I wanted. Sorry, the numbers are cut off, so I'm confused. But Nehemiah provokes the attack, that, and that's not to say he did anything wrong. He actually did everything right, but you just need to know that when you follow God, you're inviting some sort of pushback. Uh, the enemies verbally attack with mockery. So in verses 2 and 3, they begin to actually make fun of Israel and make fun of Nehemiah. They say, what are you going to rebuild that in a day? Which is kind of a way of saying, do you really know what you're signing up for? And then Tobiah says, that wall they built, if a fox jumped on it, it would fall down. Which actually may have been true. We don't know. Because as Chris and Bridgie pointed out last week, none of the people listed that rebuilt the wall were actually masonry, uh, masons or carpenters. Uh, they were like perfume makers. I don't know if I want a perfume maker uh, and a jeweler making the wall around my city, but if that's what you got, then that's what you got. So they're, they're mocked. It's a verbal attack. So Nehemiah provokes it. The first attack is verbal. It's mockery. Nehemiah responds to that with prayer to God. And in verses 4 and 5, Nehemiah prays this. 
kind of aggressive prayer, basically saying, Lord, return on them what they're praying about me. What they're saying about me, I pray that it would be true about them. And he actually says, Lord, I pray that you wouldn't forgive their sins. Which is where Ephesians 6.12 comes in, because I'm pretty sure you should not pray that about any other human being. But I think you can pray it against Satan. Because we know that God's not going to forgive Satan. He's not going to forgive demons. So you're actually praying scripture when you pray that. But please don't ever pray that about another person. Okay? No matter how jerky they might be. All right, so Nehemiah responds to pr- with prayer to God, and he actually doesn't, f- he doesn't even address Sanballat and Tobiah directly. He goes to God with it. And then Nehemiah gets back to work in verse 6, and it, he gets back to work building. So he, he's not taken off task. He's not distracted from the assignment. He goes right back to it, and it actually says that, that people had a mind to work. So that angers uh, Sanballat and Tobiah so much that they conspire and plan a physical attack. So they start attacking with their words. When that doesn't take them off task, they plan an actual physical attack, and they conspire against him. And Nehemiah responds, responds to that with prayer to God. Nehemiah's only response at this point is to just pray about it. And it works. Nehemiah's response to these attacks, Nehemiah's response to the warfare is to pray. Sanballat's biggest problem is that everything he does provokes Nehemiah to pray more. If that was how you and I handled spiritual warfare, Satan would be, would be at a loss. Oh man, every time I attack Shay, he just prays more. Every time I you know, attack Maribel, she prays. Can you imagine how that would frustrate Satan? That every time he attacks us, we just pray? We go deeper into prayer? Do you, do you think maybe he would stop and have to try something else? The, the Bible actually says that after Satan tempted Jesus, he left him for a while until an opportune time, which I don't know what that opportune time was. But again, if you resist the devil, he will... Flee, so when you don't resist him, you're kind of giving him rent space. So Nehemiah's response at, to this point through the first nine verses is only to pray. And I want to encourage you, when you're engaged in spiritual warfare, just pray a lot. You know, Don't feel like you need to take things under control. And, and I mean, that's one thing, that's, it's kind of like Satan's a little bit like a bully. Like he, he doesn't want to throw the first punch. He wants you to throw the first punch, do something stupid, because that disqualifies you. So he'll call you names. He'll say something about your mom. And then you'll overreact in the flesh, do something, and then all of a sudden now you're guilty. Do you understand? And then Satan, because he is the accuser of the brethren, can stand before God and say, oh, he hit me first. I don't know if that'll actually happen, but... Now, uh, Sanballat had a couple methods that he used so far here. Uh, If you can go to the last slide for me, Nate. I think they're all up there. There's four different methods that he uses. The first one is ridicule and mockery. He goes and he just basically makes fun of Nehemiah and makes fun of Israel. Oh, man, I hate being made fun of. 
I mean, I don't mind if it's a friend being silly and, and kind of being sarcastic. But when a person actually says something hurtful, oh, I can't stand that. I mean, I really, truly think that if a person punched me in the face, I could pick my head back up and just stand there. But if they made fun of me, oh man, I would let them have it. I would rather be hit than mocked. I mean, I'd rather actually be get, get a back rub and some cheesecake over both of those, but if I'm going to take an attack, I'd rather be hit than mocked. So the first attack is ridicule and, and mockery. And I, so as we are addressing spiritual warfare, you need to know that there may be times in your life where Satan is going to use other people to mock you and ridicule you, and that those are attempts to take you off focus from fulfilling your assignment and what you're supposed to be doing. Really, the, the best form of defense about that is to know your identity in Christ and to know who you actually are so that when people say stuff about who you aren't, it doesn't land on you and affect you very much. So you need to know who Jesus says you are so that when the enemy says something about who you are, it doesn't really land. I mean, mockery really is one of Satan's biggest tools. Even, uh, even in ridicule, even the first thing out of his mouth when he was tempting Jesus in the desert was, if you really are the Son of God, that's a little bit like ridicule right there, isn't it? I mean, especially because what happened right before Jesus was tempted? What happened? The, the baptism, right? What did God say when Jesus was baptized? He said, this is my... So for Satan's first words to be, if you really are God's son... I mean, he's going right at what Jesus just heard from the Father. Do you understand that? So this is one of Satan's tools. So you need to be careful that you don't react when people ridicule you, criticize you, mock you, uh, because it'll really throw you off balance. And once you're off balance, you can do all sorts of things and, and really end up sabotaging a situation. Now in verses 5 and 10, Sanballat uses discouragement. Oh my goodness, I can't stand this one. He, he attempts and is somewhat successful in verse 10, which I didn't read, but uh, he attempts to discourage them. And it actually says, I'll read verse 10, the strength of the burden bearers is failing. There is much rubbish and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. And so Sanballat is trying to discourage the people that are building the wall. Why do you think discouragement would be an attack of the enemy? Well, when you're discouraged, you don't work as well or as hard. You're not committed. You don't, uh, you don't push through or fight through obstacles. You just kind of give up easier. And really, discouragement ends up delaying. This is going to sound like a Joel Osteen quote, but it's not. Discouragement delays destiny. It will delay you from what God has actually called you to. As long as you stay discouraged, all right, it will delay your destiny. Now, I think that this is so important. I want to spend a couple minutes on it. Uh, because this is, in, in, in one way, kind of part of the story of my life is battling discouragement. Not depression. Ah, oh, I can see why people do this now. Uh, but discouragement. Um, 
you guys might even pick up on my discouragement sometimes. And my discouragement, you know, sometimes it's about how things are going at the church, and sometimes it has nothing to do with how things are going at the front at the church. I mean, I am a Cleveland Browns fan, so I live in a constant state of discouragement when it comes to football. But you, I, you know, I'm. I think you guys might even pick up on it sometimes, and I have to confess that sometimes I not only am discouraged, but discourage other people. And that's terrible leadership. Uh, it's You're letting Satan have more influence than the Holy Spirit. And here's why I think, you're, why I think that. In 2 Corinthians 1, it says that God is the God of all comfort. But the Greek word for comfort is the same as the word for encouragement. God is the God of all encouragement. In fact, the word, the Greek word for encourager or encouragement is parakaleo or paraclete. Does anyone know who we call the paraclete in the New Testament? Anyone? I don't hear it. Okay, none of you PBU kids. All right. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the paraclete. We often refer to him as the comforter, but we could just as easily say the Holy Spirit is the encourager. So if... If God is the God of all encouragement and the Holy Spirit is our encourager, then we really have no legitimate time to be discouraged. It's kind of like anxiety. It's one of those emotions the Bible just doesn't let you ever have. So I really uh, I want to challenge us to not let discourage in and, uh, discouragement in and, and to the point where I obtained 85 copies of this little pamphlet Actually, Anna uh, and Maribel, would you guys mind handing these out for me? I am so encouraged by your willingness to hand these out. Okay, what they're handing out to you is a, is a book, well, it's, it's a pamphlet, called How to Overcome Discouragement. It's uh, produced by Christian Publications. The guy that wrote its name is Armin Geswin. He's, uh, he died in the 90s. And... Please don't judge this book by its cover, because I know it has a guy from 1992 skiing on it, and that is not the key to overcoming discouragement, Um, although those were a great time. I'm going to summarize this for you. It's, It's a great little pamphlet. You could read it in probably 15 minutes. And actually, in our Nehemiah reading schedule, there's weeks where we say that there's uh, additional resources. So this is your first additional resource. You might want to keep this with your Nehemiah book. Read it this week. Like I said, I'll take 15 minutes. The gist of this is that when you experience discouragement, you need to recognize it and resist it. Recognize when discouragement is creeping in. It's not coming from God. In fact, this actually says it's probably not even coming from the devil. It's probably just you discouraging yourself. Discouragement is like, it's the whining that your soul makes or that your flesh makes when it doesn't get what it wants. When, you, when your flesh really wants something but it doesn't get it, it whines by being discouraged. So anyway, check that out. And I, I want to encourage us to be a people of encouragement, not discouragement. And I'm going to hold myself to that because I know that that's a big uh, part of my story with Jesus. All right, so moving on. Another method Sanballat uses, conspiracy. Um, we actually 
don't yet see or don't ever see an actual physical attack. They just conspire. There's rumors about attack. Another word for this would be intrigue. Now, how does this work in the New Testament? How does it work in the church? How does a conspiracy work in the church? Well, there are, there are big conspiracies where maybe some person decides that they should be in charge and they somehow find a way to discredit the leadership so that they can take over. But those are pretty few and far between. The more common way that conspiracy weaves its way into the life of a church is through something called gossip. Mm. Gossip has a great way of killing the community in a church as a great way of hurting people, of making people feel unsafe. Uh, people begin to not be open and honest with their stuff if they sense that there's going to be gossip. And so I think Satan loves that. There's actually, this is not in the Bible, it's an extra-biblical uh, concept, so you don't have to you know, agree with me on this. People that deal with spiritual warfare actually have identified what is called a Leviathan spirit. And it is a Leviathan is just the biblical word for like a crocodile or an alligator. And if you know how crocodiles and alligators kill their prey, they clamp onto it and then they just twist. And the Leviathan spirit twists communication within a church. Uh, and it, it works through people who will take some truth and twist it and manipulate it to get what they want. So uh, conspiracy, uh, re resisting gossip, resisting intrigue, not allowing the Leviathan spirit to have a place. And then I didn't read this, uh, because, and we'll get to it next week, but there's one other tactic that Sambalat uses, which is fear. Uh, he attempts to strike fear into the heart of the workers. And I'll just say this, fear paralyzes people. It gets them to stop in their tracks. Um, it's why some people can be standing in traffic with a bus barreling down on them and they don't move and get hit. The fear paralyzes them. We actually, uh, when I lived in New York, there was a family, they weren't part of our church, but there was a family um, where... They had a swimming pool, and one of their children fell in the swimming pool. And the mother was so paralyzed with fear that she just stood there and watched her child drown. Not because she didn't want to save the kid, but she was so afraid, she literally didn't know what to do. And her, uh, her, her child ended up drowning. And so fear paralyzes us. Uh, even on a, a kind of a, a less serious scale, paralyzes your decision-making process. I'm afraid of this. I'm afraid that. And so we don't make decisions. Uh, prevents us from, from hearing clearly. I, I want to challenge you in this. Um, don't ever use the phrase, I'm afraid that such and such will happen to prevent you from doing something. We kind of have this unspoken rule among our governing board. You don't have to agree on things, but if your reasoning is you're afraid, you've got to come up with a better reason. So I, you know, I'm afraid that, oh, I'm just afraid that. Find a better reason or, or change your mind. But fear is not a good decision-making uh, measure.
Now, by way of encouragement and to stay focused on the assignment, which is what Nehemiah did. In verse 6, it says that they had built the wall halfway up. By verse 16, the enemy is talking about an attack that actually never happens. The wall they had built in verse 6 actually was protecting them by verse 16. If they had gotten discouraged and stopped building the wall, they probably would have been prone to an actual attack 10 verses later. But because they didn't stop building and they pushed through, they were protected 10 verses later when uh, they considered an attack, but an attack never took place. So next week, I'm also going to be talking about spiritual warfare and uh, kind of how we get some of this, some of these principles from the book of Nehemiah. But today, I want to wrap up with something that's also from Ephesians 6. If you have a Bible or you use a Bible on your phone, go to Ephesians 6. This is an important passage to be familiar with. Uh, you're going to maybe feel like you're in children's church a little bit. That's okay. All right, I'm going to challenge you with this before we, before we do this. Jesus said that those who enter the kingdom have to be like little children. So I'm going to, we're going to do a little childish stuff right here. In Ephesians 6, uh, specifically verses 10 through 18, it talks about the armor of God. So in verse 10 it says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist the devil, resist in the evil day, and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore. And then he gets into the spiritual warfare. Having girded your loins with truth. So we call that the belt of truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And with all prayer and petition at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert uh, with all perseverance and petition for the saints. So here's what I want to do. I know this is going to be a little little, uh, silly, but I want to actually stand up and go through the armor of God and kind of put it on. Okay, so would you mind standing up? Okay. I know some of you are too old for this, too mature, too dignified. All right, so we're going to start in verse 14. Uh, We're going to just make really simple motions as we put each one on. And I want to point out that every single one of these correlates to Jesus in some way, shape, or form. So like the belt of truth, Jesus is the truth, right? So uh, I'm going to walk you through this. You can repeat this after me. You have to do the motions. I know it's corny. Um, I should probably have Gary up here doing this. But we're going to do it. I do it often. I just do it alone. All right. I put on the belt of truth. Jesus is the truth. 
I put on the breastplate of righteousness. Jesus is my righteousness. I put on the shoes of the gospel of peace. Jesus is the object of the gospel. I take up the shield of faith. Jesus is the faithful one. I put on the helmet of salvation. Jesus is my Savior. I take up the sword of the Spirit. Jesus is the Word of God. And with all prayer and petition, I pray, you don't have to repeat this part, with all prayer and petition, I pray at all times in the Spirit with this in view to be on alert with all perseverance and petition for the saints. And then I like to remind myself that it says in the Old Testament that the glory of the Lord is your rear guard. So you're totally covered there. But the Lord is your protector, not you. Every part, every part of this armor relates to Jesus. So I want to encourage you, I'm going to pray for you and, and dismiss us so no one passes out. But I want to encourage you, take that at that home. If you feel like you're going through a season of spiritual warfare where, where Satan's trying to mess with you, pray through this. It really is effective. It really is effective. Jesus, you've taught us throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, uh, principles for spiritual warfare because we were born into a war. And Lord, uh, we want to be good warriors. There's, there's no way out of the war. There's no, we can, it's not optional, but we want to be good warriors. So Jesus, teach us about the principles of, of warfare as we go through Nehemiah and help us, Lord, to in faith take up the armor of God uh, so that we can be both protected and also uh, strike back at the enemy and be on the offense. The, the gates of hell will not uh, prevail against the church, and the gates are defensive. So as we go in the offense, we anticipate some level of opposition, but nonetheless we go in the offense. I pray that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right. Thank